Hello, and welcome to another episode of the How to Scale a Business podcast. My name is Hector Santiasteban, and I am your host for today. And our guest today is Carter Williams, and he is the CEO and Managing Director of iSelect Fund. And the simple thing is that he's a venture capital fund, and that would be the simple way to do it, but he's got uh, no small feet ahead of him. We were talking before recording and uh, really doing some cool and innovative things within that space and industry. So Carter, thank you for, for spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, you did a much better job than I uh, I did of explaining what you guys do. I admit I'm, I'm, I'm rather naive to some of these industries, and, and so it's always a great learning from people who are on the ground floor. But tell us a little bit about what iSelect does, and perhaps if you could also weave in how you guys got there as well. Yeah. So uh, iSelect is a venture capital fund. We are focused on doing two things. The first thing is being a leading investor in the, a leading investor in terms of performance in the area of food is health. We spend $1.7 trillion in the United States on food. We spend $1.9 trillion on the healthcare cost related to poor nutrition. That's $6,000 for every single individual in the country per, per year that we spend to really sort of deal with diabetes, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, which is all really tied to the food that we eat. And so on what we call thing one, what we're doing is we're investing in ag tech and health tech that really sort of address that metabolic condition and bring out higher quality food for consumers and the entire supply chain. The second thing that we do is we are a fintech startup. While most venture capital firms are go to pension funds and, and such to raise their capital, we recognize that while tech, venture capital in the United States is about a $1 trillion asset class, $800 billion of that is focused really on classic tech in Silicon Valley. We think innovation is an important deflationary force. We think innovation is an important, all the challenges we have where there's indecision at the political level can easily be solved if somebody comes up with a better, cheaper thing. And so how do we do better, cheaper things in healthcare and agriculture and transportation and buildings and all those different things? And we think that the right way to do that is to draw more capital in. U.S. venture capital should be a $4 trillion, not a $1 trillion asset class. And so what we're doing is we are going directly to capital providers through institutional investors and uh, high net worth investors and accredited investors, bypassing pension funds, bypassing endowments. There's more than $80 trillion in people's hands in the United States that could be invested. And really, in a sense, instead of voting, why don't you just invest in if you have the capacity? invest in the startups that are going to solve the problem rather than waiting for somebody else to do it. So that's what we call thing two. And in that way, we're a fintech startup. We've invested in about 65 companies in and around the area of ag tech and health tech. On the ag tech side, we really focus on things from the dirt up through ingredients, things to improve fertilizer and kill bugs and improve crops and manage the finances better and manages supply chain, synthetic biology, getting the cost of protein down, things like that. On the healthcare side, we focus on biome and therapeutics and data systems that help doctors better understand what somebody's health condition is. Well, venture capital may have been a, a very established industry, or at least the practices may have been very set in stone 
per se. I'd imagine it wasn't easy to take the non-traditional route in a lot of these industries. Nope. Were was that something <laughs> that you guys... not easy in life? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I guess my question was: that something that you guys knew and took head on, or was it something that you kind of realized afterwards and had to adjust accordingly? We knew it was going to be hard, so there's really no reason to do easy stuff if you're trying to really innovate. So I, I think it's a little maybe peculiar to say, hey, you're going to run a venture fund and also be a startup. That is different. But I had run Boeing. I'd been started Boeing's venture fund. I'd been involved in other venture funds. So whatever, done that before. But when you're trying to really address technology problems, I'm really an entrepreneur by nature, less investor. And so, I don't know, I had a stupid gene or something and decided that do this. It is the hardest thing I think I've ever done in my life. And now that you're here, there's the classic don't chase two rabbits, right? There's that adage. And we are chasing two rabbits. So, And so my question is, it seems like you are, are aware of that, though, because you've got thing one and thing two. What systems or, or processes or organizationally, culturally, how do you I don't know if compensate is even the right word, but how do you account for both of those things and not let it be the two rabbits that you never get to? I mean, how are you guys aligning those two seemingly those two different things? Things? Well, let's, how are we doing that? I'm not positive we're doing it well yet, but I, to some degree, we are running the venture side in a very traditional way in terms of how we diligence deals operate them. That part is sort of like writing code. It's a, it's a known thing. We know how to run it. We know how to build the networks. I think what we're doing a little bit differently on the, on sort of the top code level is we really think very much about network. And I think building that network is really the thing that we're doing. And if you build the network, you can use that network to raise money. You can use that network to find companies. And so we think of a market. When we look at Silicon Valley and why Silicon Valley work well. They have the entrepreneurs, they have the capital, they have early adopter customers, and they have the talent all right there. And so when we're thinking about doing agriculture or these other things, you're spread out throughout the country. And so you need to reassemble those things. And so from the beginning, we've really, what we have been doing is building that network and saying, who are the entrepreneurs in our network? Who are the early adopters in our network? So what does that mean? So we're doing ag tech. So we went out and early on, we found 4 million farmland acres that, and got to know those farmers and said, hey, will you be the early adopters of the technologies we develop? And we know them well. And they're also investors in our fund and they adopt the technology and they remind us of other people that can help execute it. So in a sense, really what we're, the, the commonality across both things, how you raise capital, how you find startups and diligence, some, the commonality of it is really the network and so we're building that network. And so our network has 500 LPs. It has 2,500 employees across all the port codes. It has 200 really serious people who are sort of advisors to us. We have our core team of about 15 people. And so we think of that entire network as really our company. And we just keep focused on that. And that's how we keep some of the sanity together. Did that happen in stages or was that the plan where you rolled it out to be at that scale and magnitude or did it evolve over time? That was the strategy from the beginning. And in the beginning, we had one LP and 
one, one startup and, and one advisor. And so we've built it over time. And we would expect to build it much bigger. Our, our general attitude, I mean, the, the far extreme of what we're thinking about is, this is a little bit out there, but is the investment approach should be like a, a distributed autonomous organization, DAO, and the blockchain parlance. And really, the notion should be that the customer needs and the financing huddle around the startups, but are closely connected. And really, the startups can fire us, and we can fire them. And so that there's sort of a tension there. It's a little obscure, but there's a little bit of a tension there where the power dynamic is really towards optimizing to the best answer, rather than like a classic corporate structure that would say, hey, if we're going to do R&D, the CTO is going to make this decision and flow it down. So venture is good because it's a little bit more distributed. And so we're trying to distribute it a little bit more so that you can really have a merit-based kind of approach to finding the best innovations as quickly as possible and exposing them and ramping them up. So we've always had that concept from the beginning. On the far end, we don't really tell many people about on the far end of what we're thinking about is the way innovation and R&D is going to be done is is much more through a, a DAO type of architecture. And part of the reason I got there was I managed uh, a lot of the Boeing's R&D architecture within Phantomworks, which is about a 4,000-person R&D organization. And it's not, in terms of what we do with venture, it's got some similarities. This is a very rigid corporate structure. Venture is a little bit more loose. And I think what we're seeing as we get more creators and makers and you're starting to see more AI, that the incumbency of power is, uh, is going to go down and the ability to connect the best talent together is going to go up. And so we always sort of thought along that horizon. That's one commonality. Build the network, make sure the network is self-reinforcing, and that builds on top of Ray Kurzweil's work. So Ray Kurzweil, who many people have read his books on AI, and he was a CSO at Google for a long time. He really said that innovation is, invention is not the hard time. It's a hard thing. It's adoption. And I think this relates to scale. I've been involved, when I was at Boeing, we built a secret airplane in like a year and a half. And it's people like, how do big companies do that? I was like, well, you just do it. I mean, the, the invention side is not as hard as the adoption side. How do you persuade someone to use an iPhone? Or how do you persuade someone to use your app? Or how do you get them to understand it? Or how do you get your mother to understand it? Or your father to understand it? And really that adoption phase is if you want to scale something, you want to understand that adoption phase. And Ray Kurzweil talks about this in terms of exponential growth. And how do you get exponential growth to, to cause a disruption? And, and can you foresee it and figure it out? And so I think while we worked on the network at the first part, we've gotten a better appreciation over time of what are the levers in that process of driving adoption. And that's where we're still doing some work. When we get back from break, Carl, you mentioned, I, I love it. You, you said, I started the Boeing's fund. I started, and you said, you, you have this, well, I've heard it called the, the curse of knowledge, right? Where it seems secondary to us, but to other people, it's new or it's groundbreaking. And so I'm curious, when you think about that, I'm, I'm curious about the must-dos or the gotta-haves, because I think that those things that you've kind of built into your playbook can really be valuable for some of our listeners. And so we're going to get into that right after this quick break. 
Hey, y'all. Thanks for tuning in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Amplify Media, and we are a podcast and content production company. And so if you have a mission, a message, a passion, purpose, something that you want to get out to the world but don't have the time, the team, or the tech skills to be able to do it, uh, we can help. Go to AmplifyMedia.com. That's A-M-P-L-A-F-Y Media.com. You can get all the info. You can also check the show notes. And with that, let's get back to today's episode. So, Carter, one thing that we try and bring to our show is that there are some, uh, although different industries, there are industries are different and products and services are different, that there are some underlying trends or themes or commonalities to businesses. And we've found that is across industries and sectors and then also from organization to organization. And so, I'm wondering if there are any standards, whether it's, I mentioned, culturally, organizationally, if there are any benchmarks, pillars, foundational things that you think are really important, or even they might be like the things that piss you off if you're not hitting these kinds of these certain marks or these certain ideals. Is anything like that come to mind? Yeah, I think, and I'm not sure these are going to be novel, but you can never understate the value of having really good people. It's like a really good programmer. And to some degree, you, when you run a business, when I was at Boeing, I was the kind of person that worked at, I got there at 6 o'clock in the morning, left at 8 o'clock at night. And I noticed that the plant workers showed up right at 8. They backed their car in so that at 4, when they got the whistle, they could drive out quicker. And I was like, what the hell's wrong with those people? And the other thing I learned when I did my first accident investigation is all the paperwork was monitored correctly. All the documents were correct. Everything was being built. All the planes you fly on work every single day. And why does that? Because there's a combination of some people there that are working 6 o'clock to 8. And then there are other people that work, in that particular case, we're in St. Louis, 8 to 4. And they work 8 to 4 and they leave and they go home in their life. But between 8 and 4, they do the job that they're told to do and they're consistent and, and so different kinds of businesses need some talent that is going to do some crazy stuff. And then other talent is going to do exactly what you need to do them <laughs> and not change it around. Now, some businesses need 100% of the first thing and, and uh, zero of the second. And some need a mix. And if you're building aircraft, you need three or four people who are crazy and then the rest need to be people to make sure it go together the same. And so that's one thing I learned early on. But in both cases, they're very talented people in terms of they're consistent. They're doing whether if you're the crazy one that you're out investigating every idea and you've got tremendous curiosity and you're not really giving trite answers. And then if you're following process, so you're doing it precisely. You understand the process. You're well educated. You know when to raise issues when things are wrong. So I think in both those cases, you've got employees who are really dedicated to understanding the problem and, and executing it on a, on a proper basis. I think the other thing that I am reminded of every time I've made a mistake is not listening to the customer well enough. And one of my general principles is when we get into a problem, I'd say, what does the customer think? And a couple things happen at that point. They say, well, the customer thinks this. And it's like, okay, well, let's do that. <laughs> That's easy. And then there are times where people come back and say, well, we don't know what the customer wants or we don't or they say, well, we know what the customer wants. We didn't ask them. And so that's bad with me. Like if someone comes in and says, well, Carter, it's obvious what the customer wants. It's like, how is it obvious? It's like, well, blah, blah, blah. 
It's like, is that specifically what they said? No, but you need to understand. That's obviously, you need to understand. I've been in this business too. I know a lot about the business. But if you're doing a startup and you're doing innovation, what are you doing? You're, if you go back and read, there's a paper written by Frederick Hayek in the late 40s called Knowledge and Society. And he said, what the way you really get the economy to work is there are all these people out there with different kinds of requirements. And there are these people that gather those requirements up called entrepreneurs and they develop better ways to do those things. And the neat thing about an entrepreneur is they're uniquely capable of listening to all these different kinds of requirements and figuring out a solution. And so in the context of how you run a business and scale a business, I'm constantly reminded and never good enough, but constantly reminded that every single mistake we make in terms of building a better product that's more efficient, that's cheaper and better, Every single error that we make is a byproduct of not understanding and listening to the customers in an effective way. They're telling it to us. And so a lot of people say that, listen to your customers, but in the internal dynamic, the only time I make a decision to CEO uh, is when we just can't get the information out of the customer for some reason and we got to make it. And, and when I make that decision, it's a lucky guess. I might as well just spin a dial. I'm just trying to make sure we're doing one thing. <laughs> so it's not really my judgment, but my attitude is customer's opinion matters first. If we don't have it, go get it. And then let's figure out how to apply our expertise to make it better, cheaper. This has been wildly insightful, and I think that the the blending of two seemingly unique industries, I would imagine, creates some unique challenges. One of my last questions is: Is are are there any? I would and perhaps the app is that solution, but are there any non traditional solutions or kind of creative out of the box strategies or ideas that ended up working out that maybe were like that? Hail Mary, or they were a, a long shot that ended up working out. Was was there something like that along the journey? Well, during COVID, I don't know if that's a good case, but I mean, there were cases during COVID where we just worked totally on a survival. We, and we took a company public during COVID. We did a huge fundraise in the middle of COVID for a particular transaction that was having a hard time. And I think that in that case, it was just utter total focus and fearless commitment across the entire team in the most focused way that we've ever had as a team in terms of we're just going to get it to the other side no matter what. And there's no doubt. So there are things like that. Something we're thinking about doing, and so I'll give you a little bit of insight into a shift, is how do we, many people say in, in startup land, you need an MVP. So only spend enough money to have an MVP. And so in venture capital, that's what a lot of venture VCs will fund. They'll fund the MVP. With the advent of ChatGPT, I think we can create an MVP that actually doesn't have a product yet. So what's an example? Lieutenant Uhura was running around with a wireless headset in 1969, long before we had wireless headsets. What we're starting to think now is if innovation is invention meeting the customer to develop a better product. Can we use things like ChatGPT or generative AI to give the customer a complete experience of the MVP without ever creating the MVP? 
Now, in software, this seems a little bit easier than, let's say, I'm actually building like a rocket ship. But can your venture pitch be the entire product in a virtualized environment enough to give the investor the, the immersion? My understanding is Puma's sort of doing this. Puma's giving, I believe Puma is giving their customers access to Dolly in some way to say, design us a shoe. And so customers are out sort of fiddling and designing the shoe. And then it's the responsibility of Puma to figure out how to build the shoe. As opposed to having a design team inside Puma design conceptually what it should look like, can you get customers to do it? So it's a different answer to your question, but I think that the the next step in venture capital is to help startups not be an incubator, but be use generative AI to educate the investors and the talent and the customers. And that leans back to Craig Kurzweil's idea that customer adoption. So if we can start customer adoption long before the product's out, because people are seeing a virtualized world of it or a virtualized or generative AI thing of that, we could maybe speed up the process of innovation. And if we speed up the innovation, we can build better, cheaper food. People won't get diabetes. Someone could come in and say, let's subsidize it all. But if it's better, cheaper, they don't have to subsidize it. I mean, eat crappy food. And now that better food's cheaper, what it's really quick to adopt that. <laughs> well, people will find a way. <laughs> uh, Americans, yeah, at least. I mean, people will still do crazy stuff, but let's in the main, they will move in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating what you know, what AI and, and generative AI is is allowing, right? I mean, it's it's accelerating timelines like like nothing. I've, I, I mean, I was like a kid for the internet, but I can't imagine. It even yeah, how old you? When were you born? I was born in ninety one. Yeah, so the I was throwing AOL CDs into the into my computer as like a six year old. I would say that from my memory, because so I was born in sixty six, but from my memory, in when the internet came on, and it, people may want to go do this. Say, if you go look up David Letterman, Bill Gates, there was an interview that David Letterman did with Bill Gates in nineteen ninety five, in which Bill Gates explained the internet to David Letterman. And it's even funnier today, looking back. But I remember when it was live. I remember when it was live. And I remember, imagine nobody understood what he was saying. Put yourself back into 1995. And the period of sort of like when we, I remember downloading Netscape, early, early versions of Netscape, beta versions of Netscape. Like, Took like, half, took like an hour <laughs> to download. No, but it was like version dot five, and you had to FTP it down. You couldn't. Yeah. There was no download button. No, you had to FTP it down, mm-hmm. and you had to use like a news group reader to go find it. I mean, so whatever. So you're talking like 1994, and that's what I was doing with OpenAI a year ago. Mm. And I'd be interesting for other people who are my age whether they recall the same sort of thing but we were people the leading people were were just like explaining to people what even netscape did it was like all the major newspapers were like writing articles is like this is how you use a browser and now people are like born knowing how to do it and so we've in some ways we've seen this before in terms of the transformation and it's akin to that it's bigger than that 
but it's akin to that because the balance of power and the discussion and, and decision-making is, is going to move around in ways that people is very unpredictable in a good way. I think. Yeah. I've likened it in, in the way that the printing press, people always point to the printing press as this great thing. And then maybe the internet is the next evolution, but I've seen podcasts similarly kind of play a role in dispersing of information, but to the point where generative AI, it's not one directional, right? It's not just, kind of receiving information. Podcasts are great because the conversations are happening in the same way that people are feeding the AI and getting back something more. It's one plus one is three, right? It's that kind of concept. It'll be cool to see how people continue to adopt it because well, I, I, I don't... Co-pilot, the broader definition of co-pilot is on target, meaning, and I found this, is we developed an open AI version of all of our deal information about a year ago and dropped it into Slack. And really we used it as a co-pilot. It's like, Oh, I forgot this thing. Or what was that about? Or if I'm thinking about this problem, how should I think about it? And so it wasn't replacing us. It was helping us think quicker. And I, I'm more comfortable thinking that's going to be a bit of the norm when Uber first came out, somebody, a bunch of people said it's a dumb idea. It was just in San Francisco. They said the addressable market for taxis is $400 million in San Francisco. It's a dumb idea. It's just got cut into that $400 million. Well, the market grew to $700 million because there were $300 million worth of I want to ride, but I can't access a taxi the way I want to access it. And it was either time or convenience or it wasn't on my street or what, whatever the, whatever it was. There were hundreds of little smaller versions of the taxi skew that was not working. Price and timing and availability and size of cars. And I want to take my dog and I don't want to take my dog and all these different little things that were preventing the market. And the market was really a $700 million on-demand transportation market, $400 million of which was being served by traditional taxi, 300. And so I think that there are, there could be businesses that could be now be programmed that couldn't be programmed before, like rebuilding hot rods doesn't have much ERP software around it, but there'll be some generative AI thing that does that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it'll be interesting. Carter, this is, uh, I looked up at the time and, and we drifted off as AI can do with my conversation. No, like I, I tend to do that with AI too. So where can people follow up? You, you mentioned there's an app. Uh, if they want to learn more about the fund and you, wh- where's the best place to go? Yeah, so our fund is iselectfund.com. You can put in the show notes. Uh, we have been asked by farmers. It started, a farmer said, we're adopting this technology. It's affecting our business. How do we invest in it? And so while we have a lot of big investors in, we decided to open it up more. We've developed its first version of the app. It'll get, it'll look, be a lot sexier down the road, but it's first version. So you can go to the Apple store or the Android store, download iSelect Fund app, iSelect Fund, not iSelect Fund. And you can invest as little as 20, if you're an accredited investor, you can invest $25,000 in our next 20 ag tech startups. And if you care about food or you care about diabetes, then you're doing your part in moving that forward. And we've got a whole team of farmers that are adopting that technology. And so it's a way to impact food. It's a way to impact agriculture. 
And actually, when you fix those things, you also have an impact on the overall environment because you reduce waste and such. So download the app. Go do it. We'll throw all the links into the show notes as well. Carter, I appreciate you taking some time with us. And you listeners, we appreciate you guys hanging out. Go get connected. Check out the app. Hit the follow button. And we'll see you on the next one. Later, y'all.